In our passage this morning, the Lord humbles one of the greatest kings in all the earth, using Daniel as his messenger and as his prophet to bring to him a message that God is going to literally cut you down if you don't change your ways. And he ignores God. But in time, God brings to pass exactly what he said he was going to do and humbles this man and eventually brings him to his senses and back to himself. And so this is a long chapter. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. What I'm going to do is, is brief the first part of it, and then we're going to pick up and read from 19 on. So let me begin in verses 1 through 3. So this, this passage is sandwiched between two words of praise unto God. The first section in verses 1 through 3 is a word of praise that is said sort of in anticipation of what is getting ready to happen because in their real time, it's already happened. And so it's a word of praise from Nebuchadnezzar. In verses 4 through 5, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, a dream that brings fear and concern upon him, not a normal dream, but something that God is stirring in his heart and purposefully sends to him as a wake-up call. And as in past instances here in Daniel, uh, there are wise men that are brought in, and no one can seem to make sense of this dream that he has. But he's had encounters with Daniel. He knows who Daniel is, and he brings in Daniel, and it's said in verse 8 that in Daniel is someone in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods. He uses, that, he uses a plural term there. Remember, this is, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar describing what he understands Daniel to be. And he tells Daniel about the dream. He says, the dream, in the dream there was a tremendous tree, this huge, tall, strong tree, beautiful, full of leaves, full of fruit, a shelter for animals and for birds in its branches, and everything seemed to be going well until some angelic messenger comes down and chops the tree down, falls over, is taken off, and the, the stump is banded. When you put a band around a stump, it's to make sure that it can't grow anymore. This thing is completely and totally cut off. And the word is, is that whoever or whatever this tree represents, that the portion of this is going to be sent to the beasts, and the mind of this person is going to be changed. And so he's troubled by this, and he brings in Daniel to explain this to him. So let's begin in Daniel chapter 4, uh, verses 19, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Please do stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream nor the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, and may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let them be wet with the dew of heaven, and let this portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High. 
which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for from you the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the time of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built my own mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So the interpretation of this dream is that Nebuchadnezzar himself is the tree. He has a, a dream, a vision of this great, strong, mighty, beautiful tree. If you've ever been under a great, giant oak tree, it's just a sight to behold. And I uh, love sitting under those. But he will not last. He will be driven from men. There will be a cutting down of his glory. And he will go and live in the wild. He will lose his mind, as it were, lose his reason. And he will be driven out to live like a beast in the fields for a period of time. We're not told how long it is, but it's long enough for his hair to grow out and his nails to grow out. So you're talking months, at least, of time where he is driven out into the lowest possible place of humility from where he starts in the highest possible place, talking from the roof of his palace, saying, how great am I? Look at everything I have accomplished. I am such a big deal. And then driven out into the wilderness as a wild animal. And he will be there, it says in verse 25, until he recognizes 
the authority of God, that God rules the heavens, and that he is actually only given delegated authority. It's radically important. Every one of us in this room have different levels of authority, depending on what your role in in the world is and, and whatever it may be. We have different roles of authority. And no matter how high of a place of authority that you may have, it is always a delegated authority. And that authority always comes from God to someone else and then down through these levels of authority to where it lands on you at some point. But we are all, every one of us, under authority. And the ultimate aspect of pride is to think that you are not under the authority, especially not under the authority of God. And so he will not come out of this humbled state until he recognizes the authority of God and humbles himself under the rule of heaven. And so Daniel does what takes courage in verse 27. He points his finger at King Nebuchadnezzar and says, break off your sins. Man, if you've ever done, if you've ever said that to anybody, even someone that's not in authority, you know how terrifying it is to go and speak to another person and tell them directly, you are sinning and you need to stop sinning. I would say that there's probably a lot of people in this room that have never had the courage to actually ever say that to another human being. And this is to say it to someone in authority over you because you know that they themselves are under the authority of God, but we have to be able to do this. Part of the usefulness of God's word is to rebuke and to correct, which means we're taking the authority of God and applying it to another person and telling them, you are off course, you are in sin, and we're calling for them to repent. And the way it's spoken of here, it's just interesting, break off your sins. The connection that you have with these things, the connection has to be broken, not lessened, but broken. When you know that there is a pattern of indwelling sin in your life that you are hanging on to, that you love, you are clinging to, it has to be broken off or it will break your fellowship with God because the two cannot coexist together. But it's not enough to simply stop doing what is evil. Anytime there is repentance, anytime we stop doing what is evil, we have to then take up what is good. We have to do what is right. And that's the next thing he says. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. So he says specifically to him something that is of importance to him. It's almost certain that this great kingdom of his was not built by some benevolence. It was built by slave labor, him crushing down the weak and grinding them to powder to build something for himself. And so the first thing that, that Daniel rebukes him for is to, that he ought to show mercy to the oppressed and that he ought to be kind and just to them, not an unjust ruler. So any time in our lives that we know that we have sin, it is right that we repent of it, that we break it off, but then we must look to what is the counterpart? If I'm doing what is wrong, what should I be doing? What righteous and good things should I be taking up? Because breaking off sin will always lead us right back into it if it just leaves a void in our life. We cannot live life in a void. We have to be going in some direction. Our affections must be set on something. We must be doing something. And God would have us to do righteousness and to show mercy. And so it is a very clear rebuke from Daniel. And yet Nebuchadnezzar thinks, well, uh, this is not a big deal. I'm just going to ignore this. And he does. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate you uh, giving me an interpretation of that dream. Uh, maybe I'll give you some reward. And, you know, have a nice day. 
and he goes out and he goes back to his roof and whatever he's doing and assumes that God forgets about this because what it says in verse 29 is at the end of 12 months, it's not till a year later that the bell tolls. Is God not like that? I mean, sometimes we think that God works on our timetable time and in our frame of when we would like for him to work, but he so often does not. And I know in my own life that the, the discipline of the Lord or God getting my attention comes at unusual times, times that I don't expect for it to come. And so it was that a year later, as he is up on his balcony saying how great he is, in verse 30, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty, as he's relishing in how fantastic he is and all the great things he has done, the Lord cuts him down just like a tree. And the tree fells and he's driven out into the wilderness and loses his mind and lives amongst the trees and the fields as a wild animal for periods of time. And this is the rebuke of God. Do you know or do you believe that God actively still rebukes people? Because he does. He does this constantly throughout the scriptures, and he does this in our lives as well. God does this with the unbelieving and the believing. It's different between both. For the unbelieving, it is to get their attention, as we see here, to bring them to salvation, to bring them to a place, as you'll say later, of reason, where they begin to see God for who he really is and believe in him. I've prayed many times for people that are in far-off rebellion that God would do just this. He would bring some cutting-down action, some very great difficulty and hardship into their life to, to wake them up, as it were, that they might turn their eyes towards heaven and see who God really is and not lose sight of him. But for the believing, it is different. For those of us who are in Christ, the scriptures are very clear that this is called discipline. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is extensive in talking about the way in which God disciplines Christians. Because remember the familial analogy that God uses between our relationship with him to us, that he is our father and we are as his children. And as it says here in Hebrews 12, Every father that loves his child disciplines his child because discipline works to curb bad behavior and encourage good behavior. And when, when discipline is done with love and out of a right heart, it brings a great reward. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5b through 14 says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And so discipline, God brings discipline into the life of every Christian in order to help them find the path that God would have for them of righteousness. No discipline seems joyful at the time. It's always a struggle. It's always hard, but it results in holiness and righteousness. As I'm speaking to you this morning, perhaps you can think back of times of discipline in your own life. I know I can, and mine specifically related to pride. I was way too high on myself, and I needed to get chopped down. And the Lord did it in a significant way that brought me to a low, low place where I had to reconsider who I was and what in the world was happening and how in the world I had gotten there. And I pray that the Lord brought good fruit from those things. But it is a disciplining action. And so what we see here in the life of Nebuchadnezzar related to pride and in his life, a, an interdiction in order to bring him low, the same type of thing God uses for our holiness. And when we wander away from him and we get into sin, the Lord will discipline us because he loves us. And he wants to see us come back and follow after him. Well, until the result of this is reached, verse 34 he says, my reason returned to me. So along the line of this, along the way of him being out in the wilderness, his reason returns to him, which is important. Christianity is a reasonable understanding of life. What does it mean to be reasonable? It means to see things as they really are. Often when we are blinded by some thing, whatever it may be, some lie, some perspective that has come upon us, and we begin to see things not as they really are. Christianity and God's will towards us helps us to see the world as it really is. Christianity is reasonable and it makes sense. Yes, we have to believe it by faith, but it is not an unreasonable faith. That's why we can go and we can make arguments to people. We can help reason with them about their situation and try to call them back to something that makes more sense. Because Christianity is an explanation of the world that makes sense as we truly see it and as we know that it really is. It always amazes me, explanations of the world that do not include sin and death. Like, how could you possibly have an explanation of the world that does not include sin and death when you're surrounded by it every single day? It's a denial of reality. It's an unreasonable thing. Christianity explains to us the origin of sin and death, but then it also explains to us grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins and how it is that we might escape this into something different. And so the culminating verse of this chapter, after he comes to his senses and begins to worship, the passage that is in verses 34 and 35 is, is a, a passage of worship. Nebuchadnezzar, who was on his roof praising himself, is now no longer praising himself, is now praising God. We could read this to open the service, to turn our hearts towards worship. He has understood who God is and is openly praising him. The king who praised himself before is now praising Almighty God. And he has gone from pride to humility. And the way that he closes this chapter is so powerful. Those who walk in pride, he, or God, is able to humble. If God can humble Nebuchadnezzar, he can humble anybody, 
He can humble you. He can humble me. God is able and will humble those who walk in pride. This is not a new theme in the Bible, folks. The Bible is absolutely filled with talk of pride from the very first chapters. If you think that the first chapters and the fall of Adam and Eve into sin is about just eating something off of a tree, that's not the root issue. The root issue there is that they said, we might be like God, that we can become like God, that we can elevate ourselves. It's a sin of pride along with a sin of disobedience. But pride is the original sin entering into the heart of every man and woman and child. And we still struggle with it every single day. And the Bible talks about it constantly, exalting ourselves, making much of ourselves. Look at me. Praise me. I'm a big deal for my looks or my intelligence or my car or my job or all that I have accomplished. You need to make much of me. But you see, what we must understand is that God has given you all these things. The opposite of this is is a mindset of dependence. It's not about me and what I have accomplished and who I am, but the goodness and mercy and grace of God towards me, and that God, in fact, deserves the glory, that we intentionally say, look what God has done. Look how good he is. Look at what he has provided. Look at what he has accomplished for his perfection, for his holiness, for his goodness, for his mercy, for his power, for his knowledge. Andrew Davis says, and I I agree completely, the most direct competitor to God's glory is human pride. The most direct competitor to God's glory is human pride. Humility begins with recognizing that you are not a self-made person. And that's the opposite of the proud person. It's all about, I'm, a, I'm, I'm self-made me. I'm going to write a book about me, how you can be more like me. And if you read that book, maybe you'll be better too, but you'll never be like me. And that's pride. The God, God's word tells us that we ought to look to Christ and that we ought to humble ourselves in understanding that we are dependent upon the Lord. And that all that we have comes by having given favor by God that we might receive it. And when you are given something that you know is not of yourself, you receive it with what attitude? Thankfulness and gratefulness, not entitlement. And the Christian life is marked with thankfulness and gratefulness. Proverbs 15, 33 says this, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Humility comes first. And the Proverbs speak constantly about pride. I'm going to read some of these Proverbs to you. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. That's powerful. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29. 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. We could go on and on, but these are warnings to us. Pride comes before a fall. It's a, pro- it's a, it's a proverb, even an American proverb, but it came from the scriptures because it's God's will. With all of these warnings and examples, we must understand that the the worst 
course that we could possibly take is just to continue to run headlong into pride until God chops us down like a tree. There's a great Johnny Cash song I love, God's Gonna Cut You Down. And it's a, it's a great song. It's all about this. It's a, it's a modern proverb about this tree, that you're like that tree. And if you don't humble yourself before God, he's gonna cut you down, and he will. Because God will not stand for any competitors to his glory. He will not let you continue to exalt yourself and exalt yourself and exalt yourself, exalt yourself over him. He will humble you and bring you low. But this is not what we want to do. The correct way that we ought to be approaching these things is laid out for us very clearly in 1 Peter. 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses um, 5 and 6. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 is the way that we ought to be approaching these things. Peter says this, Clothe yourselves all with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Those are very simple instructions. If pride is something you struggle with, memorize these passages. Clothe yourself with humility. Your clothing is your appearance. It's what you look like to other people. May you be a person that appears humble. People don't have to ask you like they would describe you as a humble person because you seek to put on humility towards other people. That you recognize that God actively opposes the proud because they are a direct struggle. They are a direct competitor to his glory and he will oppose them. But for those that are humble, he gives grace or he gives unmerited favor. He gives blessing that they do not deserve because of their humility. How do we clothe ourselves with humility? How do we act in a humble way? How do we humble ourselves? That's what verse 6 says. Humble yourself. Don't run headlong in pride until God cuts you down. Go ahead of him and humble yourself. Take actions of humility that God might instead give you grace and mercy. I would say there's a, this could be a very long list, but I'm going to give you at least three, I think, very practical ways that we can humble ourselves before the Lord. Proverbs 27.2 says this, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. There's, there's few things more unbecoming than a person that goes about praising themselves. People recognize that even from junior high. I'm, I don't, I'm sick of that guy. Why do you not like that guy? He talks about himself all the time, praising himself. You're like, you realize, I don't want to be around a person like that. And it never stops. It starts in junior high and it never stops. All the way through adulthood. Nobody wants to be around a person that goes about praising themselves. Hear the Proverbs. Be quiet about yourself. Let somebody else praise you. Don't praise yourself. Second, give glory to God. Speak of God's goodness openly. There will be times where you're convicted in your heart, I should say something about God's glory. I should give glory to God in this situation. I can feel a person praising me, and I should do something to actively turn that away and give thanks to God and say something about God's goodness in my life. And when you feel that conviction, speak up and give glory to God, and actively say, you know what, this is from the Lord. I, I, I couldn't do this by myself. God has been at work in my life. Speak of his goodness. Be a person that gives thanks. There's a reason why Jesus set the pattern of giving thanks before all of our meals, and we should actively, really and truly, not just from rote, empty words, be giving thanks to God regularly 
each and every day before we partake of what he has given to us. Third, I would say this, actively take the low place, which means live simply. The virtue of this is called modesty. Modesty is something that is intentionally chosen to take a a lesser place in order to not exalt yourself. And this modesty can can be applied across so many different spectrums in life. It can be applied to your clothes, how you wear your, what you wear. Are you intentionally flashy so other people think that you're rich and think that you're well off? Or, or are you a person that is modest in the way that you dress? You can be modest or immodest in the cars that you drive, the house that you have. Every material thing in your life can be done with modesty or immodesty. And when we seek to show off the all that we've got and how great and how big that we are, it is, a, it is an act of pride because we're showing off to other people. Jesus, the apostles, every great Christian person that I have ever known was a person of modesty, not a person of great worldly flash. And we know that when a person claims to be great in their godliness, but also is flashy in their worldliness, we inherently know there's a problem there. There's a conflict and we just know it in our heart. And understand that people see that in you too. If you're a person of great flash in the way that you conduct yourself and your material things, and you also say that you're a godly person, they'll see a conflict there. So let us live a modest life that is marked by humility. And what that allows for is for the righteous goodness, sort of like what Daniel uh, rebuked Nebuchadnezzar of, it allows us to be more generous towards the poor. It allows us to be more merciful people because there is more there. I would encourage you in this matter to think of your grandparents, how they lived. If your grandparents are anything like my grandparents, they lived simply. And they lived with contentment in their lives. And you know what? They did just fine. And when you think, I deserve this. No, you don't. You don't deserve it. If it comes to you, it is because God has given it to you. And do away with the heavy materialism of this world. Well, coming full circle in what we've been talking about here this morning... We live in a day of exceeding militant pride. And we can know if God hates pride so much, any movement that characterizes itself first and foremost by pride is a problem because God says he hates it. God is not rightly praised until we are actively humbled. We must look at ourselves first in this. and We must make sure that in our own hearts we are humble people that we are modest people, that we are content people before the Lord, and that we ourselves are not soon to experience the discipline of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before the world and gave glory to God. And so I would ask you this morning, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Have you broken off the sins, the habitual sins of your life that you know are a part of what is in your life? Have you broken them off? Have you willfully turned away from them and asked God to help you to live a righteous and humble life? Have you cast yourself on the mercy of Christ Jesus and come to his cross, the foot of his cross, and asked the Lord to forgive you of your sins? Have you turned over your sin and rebellion to Christ Jesus that you might be known as a Christian? Or do you still walk in pride? Because God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. And thank you for your word to us. And thank you for your actions in our lives and for your actions in our time. That greatly encourage us. I 
I pray, God, that we would memorialize these things, that we would never forget what has happened and what is happening around us. But as we do this, that you would give us clarity to look at our own hearts first and that we would make sure that we are living as a humble people and that pride and militancy does not mark our hearts, that we are a people that are instead known for the love of Christ. And it's because of the love of Christ that people will know that we are Christians. And that we go out and that we walk in love and humility and holiness. And in this way, we walk in the footsteps of Christ. And so I pray, God, that you would help us. And I pray that if there is any person here this morning that knows that they have strong habitual sin in their life that needs to be broken off, that today would be a day of repentance. If there's anyone here that's come under great conviction that, yes, they do walk in pride, they make much of themselves, that today would be a day where they humble themselves before you and ask that you would help them to walk in a different way, a way of contentment, a way of modesty, a way of thankfulness. Lord, help us this morning to live as your people. Go with us, fill us with your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.